Hello and welcome to Cordial with Brett Crossley and Tom Bennett, the podcast where we mix and contemplate cordial conversations about the world, the people in it and their work. Hello and welcome back everybody to another Cordial podcast. Today I am chatting to James Casales from Seattle, Washington in the States. He comes from a sonar engineering background, but brought his scientific and logical mind to the coffee industry. Founding the coffee group Grupo Turuño Nayarita in Mexico, as well as Finca Lab and San Cristobal Coffee Importers in the States, Jim has a very impressive CV for innovation and quality control in coffee. So Jim, welcome. How are things down in Seattle? Well, I think we're doing okay. We've got lots of coffee to drink. We toast up all the best stuff and enjoy shots of espresso every day. Can't complain. No complaints at all. It's the best life when you can have a cup of coffee every day. That's for sure. So, Jim, we first met, what, in 2013 when you came to Australia? I think for the first time. I don't know if you've been been there beforehand. But I took you to a football game. And I don't actually remember this. But when one of the people who you work with came to Australia in 2018, he said that he recognized me. And I was like, that's, that's impossible. And then he sent me a photo of a photo with myself and yourself on your fridge at the football. I have no recollection of that. Do you? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. That was, that was a lot of fun. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever seen Australian, Australian rules football. The greatest game on earth. We had a fabulous time that night, and um, yeah, I met um, you know. Uh, oh, now I'm now I'm tilting out on on his name. Washington. Yeah, Washington, Washington Rodriguez, but you don't say Rodriguez in in in, in Portuguese. No, <laughs> but I don't know how to pronounce his name anyway. He was heading the uh, Ipanema Farms in in Brazil, and I had been to Ipanema Farms earlier. And it was uh, you know, many years ago with a guy named Christian Walters. And I was treated very well, and I learned so much there. And I learned, I used a lot of what I learned on that trip to Ipanema Farms to build into the systems that we're now using in Mexico and in Ethiopia. Beautiful. Yeah, Ipanema is uh, one of the most fantastic places on this planet, that's for sure. So, Jim... You're a man of endless stories and life experiences, that's for sure. Uh, but can you tell the listeners a little bit about your life before you made the change to get into the coffee industry? Any funny stories that you've got? Oh, there's enough of those. <laughs> but uh, no, I, was, I went to school in physics and geophysics at the University of Wisconsin a lot of years ago. And uh, I have started out in physics um, and I was locked up in the basement with the Van de Graaff generator for for months and months. And then I stumbled into a, uh, a job as a, as a uh, undergraduate with the geophysics department. And we got in our seismic trucks and started driving around the mountains, putting geophones in the ground. And that was awfully nice getting outside, getting into the boonies, meeting the people said, wow, this is a lot better than being stuck in the basement with the Van de Graaff generator. So I sort of sidled over to geophysics and that resulted in a basically starting a whole career of traveling, doing science experiments, getting to the Arctic, getting to the tropics, spending months in Venezuela, months on the ice. And it was really nice. And that turned into 
mapping systems, underwater sound, and that turned into working for defense contractors. And after I finally figured out that the whole name of the game for them is shareholder value tomorrow and all my long-term research started going away, um, I started looking for an alternative. And I stumbled into coffee as I learned that it was an environmentally sensitive product. Nice, nice, nice. So you mentioned that you worked in defense. Is that a bit of an Edward Snowden situation there where you get contracted in and you literally save the states from bad things that happen? Oh, good Lord, I hope not. <laughs> but but um, no, we uh, uh, the whole sonar stuff, I was doing a lot of underwater acoustics. Uh, this whole thing about underwater acoustics, we don't think about it much ourselves. Um, we are used to listening to our friends, using our ears, um, walking around and, and maybe appreciating the environmental noise or maybe not. Maybe it just gets in the way. But if you think about being underwater and if you're a whale, you're in a, you're in a giant concert hall, which is the ocean. And any, any sound that comes echoes and reverberates just, just like you went in a concert hall and clapped your hands, you hear echoes and reverberation. And that's what the whales are hearing. That's what the dolphins are hearing. And when the ships go by and make a lot of noise, it's like a fog because these critters are, are navigating with their sound and they're seeing with their sound. So once I started understanding a little bit about that, we started using the sound to see the ocean bottom and make maps of the ocean bottom. And so I generated uh, maps from one kilometer to 20 kilometers wide. We built sonars to map uh, for cable route surveys. And I think in defense, the most important thing was building 3D imaging systems that could find things that somebody left in your harbor that they shouldn't have. Mm. Yeah, those pesky things, I think. Uh... <laughs> There's, there were quite a few left around from the, the Second World War and whatnot. Yeah, really true. So once you start thinking that way, then you can you know, make some money that way. And, and uh, we started a company that made mapping systems. We built off the mapping system that I built for mapping manganese nodules for deep ocean mining. Um, that sonar we call the CMARC for sea mapping and remote characterization. Beautiful acronym. Yep. Columbia University bought one. And one thing led to another, and that was the sonar that was out looking for the first first sonar out looking for the Titanic. Right. That's another long story we could go into quite a quite a ways. <laughs> well, long story short, you're single handedly responsible for finding the Titanic. Is that it? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, we were sabotaged. That's the that's part of the story. Um, we, when you have a long-range sonar, uh, sound travels a lot faster in water than in air, but it's still pretty slow compared to light. Just a small factor of two hundred thousand. So you make a sound underwater, and you have to wait for the echo to come back. So if you're looking for a long distance, you have to wait a long time. So if you want to make an image of the ocean bottom that's maybe two or three kilometers wide, you have to wait many seconds for the sound to get back. 
So you transmit and you're waiting and you're recording and making an image and then you transmit again and you're waiting and you're making an image. Meanwhile, the ocean is, isn't waiting for you. The waves are going by. And the, and the sonar that you're dangling down near the bottom of the ocean is bobbing up and down. So if you don't do something to stabilize that, it bobs up and down and buggers up your image. Mm. So we built a, a very special tow body to put that sonar on, and that tow body was neutrally buoyant. So it's like a fishing lure behind a sinker. So the sinker is going along, bobbing up and down, and the fishing lure, neutrally buoyant, is being dragged behind the sinker. But now this fishing lure is stable. It doesn't bob up and down. So we built a, a tow body for the sonar that op operated like that. Uh, we tuned it all up. We had it all running. But the uh, weather wasn't that good when we were out there. And the guy who was in charge of all the deck equipment said, no, I'm not putting that out. You have to use my tow body. I said, your tow body doesn't work. <laughs> so it's not stable. Oh, you have to use it. So we were stuck. We had to use it. And yeah. unfortunately, the guy was Fred Spies, who was in charge of the Scripps Oceanographic Institute, and he's pretty hard to argue with. Mm. So we were consigned mm. to the lousy tow body, and we went right over the, tech, the Titanic and didn't find that out for four or five years, and we never saw it because the tow body was bobbing up and down and buggering up the images, and you couldn't recognize a, a ship on the bottom if you when you went right over it. <laughs> so if you were in charge, you would have found it five years earlier. Yep, no doubt about it. And there would have been spectacular images of it in every newspaper on the planet. As well as your face up there as well saying, the magic man has found the Titanic. Oh, I guess. That'd be nice, but... Uh, <laughs> It'd be more fun the other. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> right, so you, you have a pretty amazing story before you got into coffee. How exactly did you land on that coffee journey? You said you wanted to, to change in, into coffee because it was an environmentally sensitive product. So can you give us a bit of an idea of how, how you landed on that? Well, uh, there was a friend uh, when I was working for... Uh, Honeywell Defense. I used to go to a little nice little Mexican restaurant for uh, for lunch, and I started talking to the owner and and his wife was the chef, and one thing led to another. We became pretty decent friends, and he got tired of living in the U.S. and he went back to Mexico and opened an espresso shop, and uh, had a coffee roaster. So I went down to visit him in Puerto Vallarta with his new coffee roaster. And um, started learning about espressos and, oh, this is kind of nice. You pull on this big handle and this is really good coffee. And then, I, then from this guy, Wenceslao Aguirre, I started learning that coffee was grown as under a canopy in a forest. You had forest trees and you had these coffee plants down here. And if you did a good job, you had all these animals running around in the forest as well. And if the coffee growers didn't get enough money for their coffee, they were going to cut all the trees down. Said, hmm, hey, this is, this is kind of interesting. I hadn't a clue. Coffee for me before this was just the brown liquid that you used in the morning to get going fast. So that sort of made it a little more attractive. And we started working with Wenceslao, and we started a little business where he was getting coffee in Mexico, and we were bringing it up to the U.S., and one thing led to another, and now 
20 years later, there's Grupo Turuño Nayarita with 400 coffee growers and all, all organized and vertically integrated. And we're pursuing those ideals of maintaining those forests. Beautiful. So it was just a, a small little coffee in, in a shop in Puerto Vallarta that sparked this huge, huge transition in life for you to, to enter the coffee industry. It's really true. And when I was trying to go from, from out of the defense industry into coffee, uh, I was worried about trying to do something that might have a conflict of interest. So I figured, well, if I'm doing coffee and not, it's got nothing to do with sonars, I don't have to worry about it because it definitely doesn't have a conflict of interest. And after about five years of doing this, I realized, well, there was a conflict of interest. My time. I didn't have time to do both of them anymore. <laughs> yeah. So you had to choose. I had to choose. And it was a pretty easy decision. I said, thank you very much for all this fun working in defense, traveling all over the world, um, helping the uh, Spanish Navy fix their sonar to make maps. But uh, it's going to be more fun helping the Mexican coffee growers maintain the environment. Fantastic. So how long ago did you start that operation with with a, a friend in Puerto Vallarta? God, I forgot. <laughs> it's, a long <laughs> time. <laughs> it's a long time ago. It was that uh, coffee. He opened his shop, I think, in uh, 1993. And I went down and visited him then. And then uh, we... Going forward, trickling over the years, basically we bought our first ton of coffee to export in uh, 1996, and we discovered that uh, it was going to take the same amount of money to export one ton of coffee as it was to export a whole container. So we figured, well, we'd just try with a ton. And then while we were thinking about this, we got news from one of the airlines that they had a special on air freight. And it was only 50 cents a kilo to get from Puerto Vallarta to Seattle. And I said, right. oh, really? That's kind of nice. So we took our one ton of coffee down to the airport in bags. And it was a floor load on an airplane, a, seven, a 727, I think, and brought it to Seattle. It went with an old beat-up pickup truck and picked it up in Seattle and uh, brought, it, brought it home and stored it in the basement and then started trying to sell it. Fantastic. That's that's the beginnings. I don't want to make you feel old or anything, but Brett and I were both born in 1996. <laughs> uh, well, you were but too hey, young to drink coffee then, you guys. I probably was a little bit too young to drink coffee then. And uh, yeah, you were making roast profiles back in 1993 on Microsoft Excel. That's that's quite a long time ago, considering a lot of the industry have only jumped into that in the last 10, 15 years. It was just something engaging. And um, so we did it. And then, then selling it, and it was, that was selling this coffee. So we found a roaster in Seattle that was interested, and we had this really beat-up pickup truck that I had, and we took like 10 bags that he wanted to buy over to the roastery, and we helped him carry the bags in there, and he really liked the coffee, and he looked at the truck, and he said, gee, did you bring it all the way from Mexico in this truck? <laughs> oh, jeez, there you go. It was amazing, but it was relatively easy to sell. So I was says, whoa. This is, this is a cool business. Little did I know. <laughs> so it started in 1996 selling the coffee. So how did you start Grupo Toronio Nayarita in Nayarit, Mexico? How did that come about? Well, we, the, uh, we bought that coffee from one producer 
in Malinao. And that that producer's nephew was was uh, president of the of the ejido of the of their their coffee stuff, and they had just had some really rough go with some big uh, big importers, big exporters, and where they they had gotten they had gotten screwed out of the cost of one container of coffee, and they were pretty grumpy. So they were willing to work with anybody to give it a try. So we started working with those guys, and my idea was, gee, let's uh, we'll work with them. We'll sort of vertically integrate. We'll develop this one source. We'll have some really good coffee, and it'll be unique, and it'll be, everybody will win. So we started down that road. Those guys were all very happy. Went up there, worked with them. We got put little process controls in place, trying to get the, the quality. I'm learning. They're learning. We're all learning, and it's moving forward. Well, then after three years, they had an election, and the guys that were running it were elected out. The new guys came in. The new guys then immediately hired all their, their friends and their, and their brothers and their, and their sisters, and all of the work we'd been doing for the last three years was out the door. We had to start over. I said, oh, my God, all right, so now we start over again, and the coffee quality took a dip, and now we're starting up on another hill. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, while this was going on, another group came in and they said, well, you want some of our coffee? Well, long and short, we started growing laterally faster than we were growing vertically. And Mm -hmm. so we had to grow the base so we could always select through and have enough good coffee to support the model. So, and, and every time these guys would elect a new set of leaders, we'd start over again in that, in that place. And so that just doesn't work. That's not sustainable. So that gave me the idea that what we would need, what we needed to do was start a coffee quality management company. So we did. We started a company and we talked to these growers and we said, look guys, I will continue to buy all your coffee just like I said I would before. But in order to make sure that we're getting really good quality that we can sell for good prices and make everybody happy, you guys will have to use the services services of our new quality management company, Café Sustentables de Mexico. They said, well, yeah, sure, we'll do that, but who's going to pay for that? So I looked at them. I said, well, I'll pay for it. Don't worry. I'll pay for it. Okay. Okay, then we'll do it. So now the organization had a corporate memory. You're not going to, we're not going to reelect the guys in Cafe Sumex, Cafe Sustentables in Mexico every three years like these guys did. And now we had a corporate memory in the system. And so, okay, now we could do it. So we started getting better quality, stabilized the quality. And after two years of this, I had a big meeting with these guys. And I said, okay, guys, look, here's how much you got paid for the, uh, the coffee and Here's how much it costs to do the quality control. And here's how much we got we got paid for the coffee. And so who paid for the coffee quality management? I said, well, I guess the coffee did. Yep. That's it. Well, so now can we work together better? Yep. <laughs> so so now we had a little core, and the core could go forward. And now you're talking about one organization. And that one organization has a stable component that does the quality management and a politically unstable component, I'm I'm exaggerating that, uh, where the coffee is being produced, but multiple organizations, not just one. Mm -hmm. 
So if one of them goes south, for whatever reason, you don't lose your mark, you don't lose your source of coffee. So you need the, the diversity of the producers, the stability of the coffee quality management to make something that works. And the coffee quality management company basically is the long-term stability. It's the, it's the memory. It's the corporate memory in the system, the, the organization that remembers how to do the processing year to year and doesn't rely on people who are re- elected every year. Fantastic. So you were able to figure out a way that you could make it consistent and, and over time. Exactly. Great, great. So from that, uh, you started Finca Lab, which is effectively a way that Cafe Sumex could implement this quality control at a farm level. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown on how you how you started that and and what you realized that you needed to include in a in a Finca Lab for this to be possible? Well, that was another thing. I was uh, uh, involved in the with the Specialty Coffee Association because I was trying to learn about the specialty coffee stuff, and I started learning about coffee lab equipment and fancy roasters and cupping and all that kind of stuff. And I go down in Mexico and I look, and nobody's got any tools at all. There's nothing. So how do you go from zero tools to a la- lab quality stuff without spending a zillion dollars that you don't have? So basically, we started trying to figure out how to do this inexpensively and yet to laboratory standards. And that led us to a whole bunch of discoveries. But basically, you could do it with a little portable portable box where you had your cupping table carried around. And you could cup, uh, carry that thing around to different places. You had to have your own hullers. We figured out how to build hullers with hand blenders. Um, there was no decent roasters. You, there was just no way to get a roaster that didn't cost a zillion dollars. So basically, I invented one. So we invented a, a, a relatively inexpensive roaster that did a very, very precise, precisely controlled roast. So coffee growers could do it by just throwing roasting it. And at the end of 10 or 11 minutes, they had coffee that was roasted on exactly the same profile to exactly the same temperature. And they didn't have to know anything about roasting other than hearing it beep and dumping the coffee out of it. So we, we took steps to get laboratory standards that were not so expensive that they brought you to your knees. That was the Finca Lab at the end of the day. We called it the Finca Lab. Finca is the Spanish word for little farm. And this is the laboratory for the professional laboratory for the little farm. Keep it simple, stupid. The best way to go about it. Absolutely. The kiss, the kiss syndrome. So Thinker Lab effectively enabled growers or, or, or people at the farm level to be able to implement quality control to the SCA standard. But another byproduct of that, let's say, is traceability. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown on how how you came about the traceability side of things? Yeah, it's interesting. Traceability is the inevitable consequence of process control. So if your objective is to consistently produce good coffee, you need to control every one of the steps in that production. So coffee production is not artisanal, it's, it's manufacturing. So you think of it as manufacturing, that means each one of the steps, how you pick the fruit, 
what the fruit quality is, how you measure the fruit quality, how you put that fruit together every day from the people who are picking it to produce a lot, how you, how you dry that lot, how you ferment it, how you do anything to it that affects its flavor, and then how you evaluate it and evaluating it to, to uh, professional standards and then designing blends of lots that were dried on different days and then processing those blends. Every one of those steps you have to take from the coffee plant to the exporting. And if you're managing every one of those steps, traceability falls on the floor in front of you. You, you, you trip over it. Fantastic. And so at what point did you implement Finkalab to enable this traceability? Because from what it sounds like, it's been a long, long time that you've had traceability in your whole system. Yeah, we we started putting those process controls in in the uh, in the late '90s, early 2000s, um, and well, actually 2003. I'm sorry, we put the really get the uh, Café Sustentables in Mexico was 2003, and then we started developing, and it's been continuous development ever since. It's not been a little. A little, you don't get it overnight by any stretch. It's learning, implementing, and 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 trying. Um, by 2006, we were every bag of coffee that we had, we exported with a barcode and a serial number, and we've been doing that ever since. And our level of traceability and our level of of uh, understanding of all the steps has been increasing ever since. And in the for going from the rudimentary traceability which we had parcella, the, the each place where the coffee is grown, to to the lots that were being exported, but now to the point where you actually know your coffee so well that you can design blends to for flavors that uh, buyers are requesting. So Fantastic. all of that is part of the process control, and when you have control of it, the traceability is there. All these different data points coming into one. It's it's quite a fantastic system that you're able to effectively create a flavor of a coffee. That's great. Yeah, it's massive. Well, you can't quite create it. What you're doing is taking advantage of the flavors that you find. So every time you cup a lot of coffee, you say, ah, this one's got uh, this one's got a little citrus. This one's got some apples. This one's got blackberries. And then you cup another one and you say, this one's got a little citrus and this has got blackberries and it's also got blueberries. And then you cup another one and you say, this one's got some grapefruit. And so now you put all those in, a, in your database and you start looking for overlapping things. Well, here's all the citrus stuff. Here's all the berry stuff. And then you can start picking those flavors and put lots together that have similar flavors to maximize the ones that your customers want. For sure. Does this also allow you to uh, effectively blend up? So take lower quality coffees and blend it with better quality coffees to earn a better price on those lots? You can do that, but it's risky. Yes, but yes, the answer is yes. Um, the other thing we discovered in just the last few years is that uh, when we're cupping coffees that are, say, just barely make it at, at 80, 80 on, the, on the Q scale, SCA, the old SCA scale. So 80 is supposedly an 80 cup is the, is the limit between is that where specialty coffee starts and commodity sto coffees stop. So if you have a 79, it's a commodities coffee. If you have an 80, it's just barely into the, into the door as specialty coffee. Well, now we take all of our 80 cuppers. 
and our 79 and 80 cuppers, and we look at what, what we have in there as flavor notes. This, this lot cupped at 80, but it's got a negative flavor in it. It's got a straw flavor in it, but still it cupped as 80. Hmm, okay. So what if we take all of the 80 cuppers and take all the ones that have, and select only the ones that have no negative notes? What happens? And what if we take the ones that have just two negative notes, and there are still 80 cuppers, and, and combine those? And we've done a bunch of experiments, and we found that all of these ones that have no negative notes, actually, if you combine those, you get a coffee that went up a, a, up a point or two, and you've saved it. So we wow. call those rescates. Those are rescued coffees. Rescates. That's great. That's amazing. And at the end of the day, that's that's uh, better because you can earn more from selling that coffee and you can feed it back into the farmer, the person who's produced that coffee. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown on, on how your, your pricing model works for the farmers, how they're able to earn better prices than if they were selling to the so-called coyotes on the street? Well, we do the – we've separated. Because coffee is uh, manufacturing, each of the participants has a role to play. The producer, the, pr the role of the producer is to maintain his parcella, to keep his plants in good health, to make sure the forest is around it, the shade is managed, uh, the, 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 the ground is good, things are fertilized, uh, you don't have diseases on the plants. He's got a lot of work to do. And, uh, you know, he doesn't need another job of coming in and trying to trying to haul and ferment and do all the stuff in his backyard. He's got enough work to keep his his coffee plants good and actually produce some avocados and some citrus on the side to help maintain as the coffee commodities market jerks his prices around. So if you're looking at stability, he you needs he needs to have agrodiversity, not just coffee. So his job is to produce the coffee. The organization's job is to take that fruit that's produced and maximize its value by, by carrying the fruit forward and getting the best quality out of that fruit that you can and selling that into the appropriate market. If it's really good, it goes to this market. If it's pretty good, it goes to that market. If it's okay, it goes to this market. If it's lousy, hopefully you haven't got too much, it goes into that other market. So the, the group's job is to do that. The coffee producer's job is to bring in good fruit all the time. So that's what he needs to get paid for. So hmm. what we do is we say, okay, guys, we're going to give you the price of the fruit will be just sort of what the commodities price is. We'll, we'll, we'll make it a little bit better. If you were selling just to commodities, you'd get eight pesos for your, per kilo for your fruit. We'll give you eight pesos. But you're part of the organization. And now when that coffee goes out the door, if that coffee went into a really good lot because it was really good and that lot made a lot of money, we'll give you a premium. So some of those producers, their eight pesos turns into 18 pesos because that coffee they brought in was really good. The fruit quality was measured when they brought it in and they get a premium based on the fruit quality. And the group gets a pre premium based on the quality of the coffee that goes out. So you map that premium back to the producers to pay them for their fruit and pay them for the fruit on a scale that's related to the fruit quality. Fantastic. 
Yeah, it's a it's a feed forward and feedback system, and it and it really works. And you mentioned agro diversity there. I I actually came and visited back in April two thousand and nineteen, and I can remember walking through the farm, and there were orange trees, mandarin trees, chilies. There was avocado trees, all of this sort of different crops growing. And it was quite an experience to walk through the coffee fields eating an avocado off the ground. As a as a good Melbourne boy I am, I love my avocados. Yeah, and they're pretty good too. Yeah. <laughs> no, do- no doubt. So they're, yeah. they're, even the ones you pick up off the ground are better than the ones you find in the shop. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So Grupo Turunio Nayarita is made up of a lot of constituents. Can you give us a little bit of an idea about how uh, the power of numbers can allow you to do things more efficiently and the economies of scale? Well, it's a, it is a matter of efficiency. Um, if you, you have a, a wet mill, for instance, and the wet mill employs, employs uh, perhaps six people, and those six people now can manage, um, let's say, reception of five, five or six or seven tons of fruit every day and, and produce a, a single lot of coffee for that day. So you've got six people that are doing that, and they're doing it in a controlled manner. As opposed, and, oh, and that, that, uh, that one mill is being fed by perhaps 40 to 60 producers. So those 40 to 60 producers are doing their job to bring in good fruit. And six people, or eight people, six, depending, are producing that, are turning the fruit into a dried product. With, so think about how many people are involved in each job. If each of these producers had a little wet mill in their backyard, now there'd be 60 little wet mills in the backyard. These guys would have less, less agrodiversity, and they all be working their buns off in an uncontrolled manner to produce the parchment that went into the final product. So not only do you have vastly more efficiency by centralizing your wet mills, you now put control on the process, you stabilize the quality and improve the quality without having to train people, you only train six people to do the work. Fantastic. It works like a charm. Well, I don't know about a charm, but it definitely works. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great. That's great. Yeah, one of the things, Tom, that I I like to think about, and maybe it'll, it'll help view it, we... You know, the old joke about, or not a joke, the saying about it takes a village. And really, it takes a village. You're trying to involve the community and get help the community develop by increasing their income, the income for the community. That's one model. The other model is too often touted in the recent years. You see the hillside, the mountainside. You see the picture of the producer with a couple bags of coffee at his feet. Standing next to him is his wife holding the baby. And now there's a big hand that comes out of the sky and picks those two bags off the, off the ground next to him. And he gets a lot of money for his coffee. That's, that's what the public thinks of as traceability and good coffee coming. And who is that benefited? That has benefited one guy out of the 60 producers. And it has benefited the the importer who's making a lot of money on that coffee. It has it has done virtually nothing for the community. 
So you have to back up from that image and think about cooperation, synergy, the, uh, and the economy of scale. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the betterment of all people, not just one. Exactly. So, Jim, have you been able to scale this, this philosophy and, and the idea of quality management to anywhere else in the world in coffee producing? Well, we've, we've had a couple of runs at it. It turns out that most, most organizations that we found so far are either really big and they're doing this, this more commodity-based stuff, or they're really tiny and promoting the, the one grower and, you know, that's waiting for the hand to come out of the sky. Um, there are a few organizations that are ready. Uh, we've been bringing interns in to help us during the harvest for a few years. Interns from Peru. Uh, we've had interns from Mexico. And we've had interns from Ethiopia. And I'm very happy to say that um, this year, we've got uh, Finkelab processes starting in uh, Ethiopia in a place called Aira to the, uh, to the west of Addis Ababa, uh, to the west of Nekempte. And these guys have, have produced about three containers of coffee this year, and they're starting their harvest in another few weeks for the next year. The, uh, they have two interns that worked with us, and they are using... Finkelab process controls now in Ethiopia, and we have one container of their coffee on the water coming to us now, and it is spectacularly good. Fantastic. Fantastic. So was it difficult to try and implement such a system that requires such cooperation from a lot of people in a country like Ethiopia? Generally speaking, the answer would be yes. However, these guys, this whole organization is relatively new. There is a, a family from this area that wanted to start up, and one of their one of their uh, sons has had a solar a solar cell, a solar business in Addis. And this guy was making enough money with the solar business that he wanted to invest in the family business and his community. So basically, these guys are starting an entirely new organization from start from scratch. Right, and starting right. it, so basically, we didn't have to teach anybody anything. We didn't have to retrain anybody. They got they got spun up with the right mindset from the start, and that made it really possible. Fantastic! There you go. So you're expanding Finca Lab across the world. Is there plans for another one soon? Well, we have to just keep putting ads out for interns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it seems like a pretty fun time being in Mexico for for six odd months during a harvest, learning all about coffee and and the life. It really is. Um, we've had the in the first years we were doing the internships, we were focused more on on uh, producer organizations sending interns so that they could bring the process controls back. Uh, in the last year or two, we've had some people from the other end of the business coming in. And that's bringing more to the party as well. Now we have um, potential customers that can help build the organization vertically by going back into the, uh, into the world at the other end of the, at the other extreme. Instead of the producer level, they're at the uh, competition level. We have, we have one guy that was an intern last year that is a barista judge and a cupping judge. And he works as a, with a roastery. 
So this guy knows coffee quality. And he just loved working with us. And he could see how the whole process control stuff was working. He didn't know about that end of it before. And now he's, he's one of the great advocates we have. And he's working in the Czech Republic. Fantastic. So the reaches of Europe, as well as North America, and I guess Australia as well. That's correct. <laughs> Fantastic. All righty. Well, I think that'll conclude our little chat that we've had. And I hope that we can have a few coffees soon face to face, although I'm, I'm betting that it's still going to be a few months away at least. Um, but thank you very much, Jim, for jumping on. And I do appreciate the time. I hope all the listeners enjoyed your story and, and what you had to say. And we look forward to, to checking in with you soon. Thanks very much. I really appreciated the opportunity to talk with you, Tom. And I hope that uh, what I was able to communicate helped some people. It really would be fun to hear that. Absolutely. We'll get all the feedback to you. We'll, uh, we'll chat to you next time. Thank you very much, Jim. Wow. So, Brett, Matt, that was a very long but very interesting conversation that I had just had with Jim. What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, you can tell this man's been drinking coffee for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, just him starting in their conversation in the geophysics and uh, technical science stuff just went well over my head, that's for sure. But, I mean, that, that's just a sign of how technical the man thinks. He's got a very logical mind on him. Yeah, that was actually something I found quite interesting was a man with formal training in geophysics taking that, applying that to geophysics world, but then leaving it and becoming a businessman and then also being able to um, help people make the most out of their out of their land and, and get the most out of their beans as well and, and maintain quality and create a system of maintaining that quality that can help him to uh, grow his business. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of the lessons that he he learned along the way did get applied in his later life in the coffee industry, that's for sure. Man of experience. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of what his whole model's built on. It was built on trial and error. There was a lot of attempting things the first time and then, and then failing and then realizing what steps they can take from that that they can, you know, not have to go through that in the future. A true scientist. He's, the world is his lab. That's it. The world is his life. <laughs> I must admit, I don't know a whole lot about the sonars and maritime stuff, but gee, how interesting was it to hear that, you know, he was about to find the bloody Titanic. Uh, one of the, well, I guess it is the most well-known ship and probably one of the most well-known movies of all time. That's a bloody cool accolade, if you ask me. Yeah, it's a shame it's not quite his, uh, even though it's his technology and everything. It's just sad that egotistical maniacs uh, tend to run the run the ship <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> can we say that yeah i guess so i can't say why not <laughs> yeah that's my opinion at least yeah so one of the things that really jumped out at me tom was the discussion about the corporate memory so i think uh jim was saying that he created a, a corporate memory by establishing a quality control system or business that would talk directly to whoever was elected and the broader cooperative as a whole can you explain that? Do you understand what's going on there? Yeah, for sure. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, I think the way that it started was the fact that there was one cooperative or community that Jim was working with and, and implementing his model. And he noticed that other 
communities or cooperatives wanted to join his model, but didn't necessarily want to join that one cooperative that was already established. They wanted to have their own. And so that's how he formed the group, Grupo Toruño Nayarita. And so now it's a bunch of communities and cooperatives uh, that come together under the one group. And so that's, that's the foundation. Now what Jim saw was the fact that one of those groups potentially could become a little bit more corruptible than another, depending on who was in power. And so that's why he came up with the idea of the quality management company, Cafe Sumex, and said, well, if everybody in this group is going to be participating in the model, they have to use this quality control company. And that quality control company is going to tell you everything that you need to do so that we can pay you more because it's going to add value down the chain. So that meant that whoever was in that group that didn't want to participate in that model, they could leave. And then he also gave the power to the group, so elected people within the group from all these different communities to be able to invite other communities or cooperatives in or kick some out depending on how good they were or how bad they were. Does that help? That does help, yeah. It makes a bit more sense there, yeah. Perfect. But so, so that's why the corporate memory was so important is to overcome the change in people in power exactly, and ensure that the, benef- the benefits that are accruing to everyone in the group continue because everyone's continuing to use the Cafe Sumex quality controls and things. Exactly, exactly. It was effectively creating IP and keeping it within a company instead of an elected individual. Cool, which comes and goes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, awesome. All right. What stuck out for you, Tom? One of the statements that uh, really stuck out for me, Brady, was that coffee is not artisanal, but rather manufacturing. I guess this is uh, bringing further ideas of technology and economics into coffee and the industry. And I guess it's it can be seen in the Brazilian side of things where everything is, is done to the finest tea. They have uh, a lot more, I guess, capital and, and knowledge and technology in making coffee a a profitable product as well as a more complex uh, industry than what's been done historically with coffee. So so what you're saying, Tom, is that there's a, a new shift or a new age in coffee production where we must, in Jim's opinion, and something you're quite interested in, is that we need to move away from this idea that coffee is an artisanal kind of handed down between generation, between the family uh, who's looking after the crop. Uh, and instead, they, we must adopt more scientific and rigorous approaches to mass produce and improve the quality uh, and output yeah, for sure. um, systemically is perhaps what he's trying to raise and, and help help along. Yeah, for sure. I mean, with the advancements of technologies and, and being able to to now put our fingers on, you know, weather patterns and way things grow and a bit more of a biological understanding about what's happening within, you know, agricultural products. I think now it, it kind of has to step into a manufactured good rather than an artisanal thing that's, you know, passed down from generation to generation by spoken word. I mean, those things definitely do help and, and potentially there are some things that science, you know, can't necessarily explain just yet. But for sure, I think... Uh, manufacturing is is definitely a better way to look at the way the coffee industry is going now. Mm, I think that's fair. I mean, just talking to Eduardo in our last podcast, man, it was interesting to hear him apply this new age of 
thinking as well. I mean, he's applying science and he's working with agroforestry people developing new systems that are scientifically rigorous and modern and will take coffee to the next level towards that mass production and high quality and high kind of environmental value too that perhaps wasn't always there passed down through this artisanal means that we've had before. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Spot on. Mm-hmm. Cool. Just one one thing on that, Tom, that sounds a lot like a certification standard that puts Rainforest Alliance and, you know, fair trade at a, to a lesser degree were in, are implementing across the world, right? They're, they're, they're creating systems and protocols and, and methods of cultivation that are modern and, and scientific. Yeah, absolutely. I think where Jim comes from and, and it's part of his character and, and what he what he does is he has looked at these mass certifications, I guess you want to you want to call them because they're widely adopted across the world. And he can see some sort of flaw or potentially something that he can do better. And that's what he's really tried to implement here. You can talk to him for ages on why he thinks that the, the fair trade certifications or the, the Rainforest Alliance certifications or, or whatever you want to look at, why his model will work better. And, and I understand that it's much, much smaller scale what he's doing and perhaps the results could be better or they could be worse. I'm not exactly sure, but he's definitely passionate about what he does. And, and I guess that's what he's trying to, trying to aim for. I see, I see. Okay, so he's in that kind of ilk, at least. He's, he's competing with these people without directly competing. He's just trying to make coffee better and more systematic. Yep. Or his coffee, at least. Yeah, got it. Okay, interesting man. Yeah, indeed. Perhaps the highlight of the interview, though, for me, was the bit that Jim said about how often, recently at least, one producer in the community benefits from having a small production of very, very good quality coffee where the rest of the community doesn't necessarily benefit as much. In a community, I guess, such as the people in Nayarit, Mexico, where he's doing his work, it's it's, it's not easy to make a living growing coffee and re- requires the support of the community. That's exactly why there's cooperatives such as the ones that are in Grupo Toruño Nayarita. So not, not just the way that this can potentially play a part in in ruining relationships within the community by having one person that that gets the the majority of the income and and whatnot but also i guess political positions and and that goes back to why he implemented cafe sumex and and trying not to not to have people being elected or in positions of power that can potentially ruin the community as one Mm, interesting so sharing the benefits and safeguarding against the potential disasters as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it comes down to more of a, a social issue than than anything else. If we're if we're trying to be as beneficial as we can to people that need our help, why not try and help as many people as we can, not just one? You know. Yeah, it's quite noble. Yeah, I mean, I completely understand why one person, you know, if they produce such a good coffee or product that they should be they should be rewarded for it but perhaps there are better ways to do it and i think that's what jim's you know jim's expressing very nice yeah Yeah, it is indeed but yeah Uh, overall i thought i thought jim's a very very interesting guy and he's he's very steadfast on his opinions that's for sure and and uh yeah i think he's he's doing some good some very very good stuff in in mexico and and now in ethiopia which is cool 
and I'm sure that this will be taken further across the globe. Wicked, indeed. So, Brady, mate, uh, we've had our two podcasts up already, and this is the third, but we have some people that have been writing in, giving us some good reviews and a few cheeky criticisms. I've had one here from a good friend of mine. He sent me a voice clip, so I'll play it for you. Here you go. Hey, guys. Absolutely loving this podcast right now. Your last episode with Eduardo was very informative, and it's amazing to learn about the innovation going into agrodiversity on an economical level, which, in my opinion, is the main place it's needed to help show profitability meshed with sustainability. I do have one criticism of the podcast, though and it comes with a lesson in linguistics. Here in North America, we pronounce the name of your podcast as cordial. The word is primarily used as an adjective, and Merriam-Webster's dictionary describes cordial as showing or marked by warm and often hearty friendliness, favor, or approval. Example, Tommy greeted Breddy with a cordial welcome. The second listed meaning is politely pleasant and friendly. Example, Australia and Canada maintain cordial relations. After listening to the first episode, I understand that cordial is a cheeky beverage from Australia best served with a side of chips and tomato sauce, so I'm sure my criticism is lost, but not without trying. Keep up the good work, guys. Can't wait to see who you're able to pull onto the podcast in the coming months, and Happy New Year. Oh, it's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, look, I'm, I won't be changing anything anytime soon, but I appreciate the lesson from Mr. Chomsky himself. Yeah, me either. I'm, uh, I'm a little bit surprised. I guess the North Americans are a little bit slow. Cordial. Cordial. What's that all about? That's cordial, yeah. mate. Anyway, it was, it was a good review. Now, we're both Australian. We've got our Australian roots. If we say cordial, it's going to stay as cordial. That's the way it's going to be. But you're welcome to say it in any, any way you like, I suppose. Yeah, of course, of course. Get the word out, and obviously, that it's cordial. And if people ask what's cordial all about, then you just show on the podcast, simple. But no, nah, thank you very much for the reviews. And if anybody else wants to make any more cheeky criticisms, please send it through. And, and it's only going to make this podcast better. Isn't that right, Brady? That's it. Bit of light entertainment. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Very good. All right, so that's number three done. What do we got on our plate for the next one? Give us a little bit of a teaser, Brady. We'll be chatting to a very wise and interesting fellow. His name is also Brett. He is a professor at Monash University, and he's also a big man in the coffee industry. He does lots of research, or he has done lots of research on developing countries and doing statistics about them. But he also, on the side, he looks after a uh, not-for-profit business called Tradewinds, and he buys up a bunch of coffee from Timor-Leste. And he distributes that around Australia. So it's very interesting to hear from him. And he also had a big hand in the original fair trade organization before it became a licensing organization here in Australia. So lots of wisdom, lots of stories, interesting guy. Tommy and I both were lectured by him and heard lots of, of his stories in class. Um, so happy to unpack that and we can chat a bit more about it next time. Beautiful. Yeah, I did love Breddy as my lecturer back in the day. Jeez, that was a good time, wasn't it, Brett? It was. Gee, the glory days. The glory days, exactly. That was the same semester that we met. It, yeah, first semester, yeah. Taking it way back, taking it way back. But mm-hmm. yeah, can't wait for the next uh, next interview that we get to do. 
and for a little debrief that we do afterwards. But uh, for now, I guess, we'll get, get rolling on some more projects further along the line. That's it. But we'll catch you next time. Watch this space. Watch this space, exactly. We've got a big year coming up. See you guys. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cordial. We will be back next time with a brand new guest to mix and contemplate more Cordial conversations about the world, the people in it, and their work. If you happen to be enjoying our dulcet tones, listen to more Cordial conversations on all major platforms like Spotify. And if you still can't get enough of us, check out our website and Instagram at cordial.live. The link will be in the description. 